Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Full Life. Thank you for joining us again. Today, we're talking cancel culture, and we have a special guest. You won't want to miss it. Welcome to another episode of The Full Life, the show that wants you to live life to the fullest with God. And we do that by really engaging in those conversations that intersect our faith and our culture so that we may refine our faith further every single episode. Uh, and today's topic is uh, certainly one that's always in the news nowadays. It's cancel culture. And we're going to talk about what that means. And, and someone will talk to someone who has some personal experience with cancel culture recently. But first, I want to welcome our panel in to start our show. Bring them on. Welcome to Carolyn, Hank, and Jenny. Hey, hey guys. guys. How are you? Always good to spend the day with you guys. Uh, we'll start today with a new segment, what we like to call an encouraging word this season. And today, Hank has a special Easter message. We just recently celebrated Holy Week, and I was just reminded for an encouraging word, um, just everything that Jesus faced that week. A lot of times when we think about Holy Week, we might want to jump to Easter and celebrate Resurrection Sunday, or maybe some of us dwell um, on Good Friday and why um, that was only really good for us. But I was just thinking about the, um, the everything that Jesus went through. He rides into town and enters as a king um, in the middle of the Passover with pilgrims from all over the world and this great celebration where people threw cloaks on the ground and palm branches, all celebrating him as a conqueror and, and a king. But yet he leaves as a criminal. He's betrayed and thinking about how in betrayal, it cuts deeper. Well, it's only possible from, from the people we know. Um, and it cuts deeper the, the more well-known you are. Think about how Jesus was hunted, was arrested, was beaten, suffered, and crucified. Thinking about the Last Supper and implementing not only communion and the table to come, but reminding us that his body would be broken and his blood would flow. Um, but where I want to kind of take us back to is Gethsemane. If you remember that scene, Jesus is off praying and the disciples are trying their best and they keep falling asleep. And he talks about how the, the flesh, um, the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. But what I want us to hold on to when we think about Gethsemane going forward is, you know, in essence, to me, this is one of the most human aspects of Jesus. You know, this is Jesus in his full humanity. He knows what's going to happen. He predicted it. He's gone through this week of ups and downs and everything. Yet when he gets to Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so my encouraging word to us this morning is to one, remember that our Jesus came for us. Remember that God came and not only dwelled and showed us how to live in love, but he literally came to suffer all these things and triumph. But also remember that no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard it seems, that simple prayer of giving it not only to God, but saying, not my will, but your will be done, um, can end up in God not only strengthening you to face whatever you're facing, but to remember the example of Jesus and to remember that we don't get to Resurrection Sunday without Good Friday evening. To remember that sometimes we have to take up our cross, yes, but also that we have to lay things down. So I pray that you're encouraged by not only what Jesus suffered, but the fact that Jesus triumphed. And I hope that you know that God desires for you to triumph as well and placing your trust in him and committing your life by saying, not my will, but your will be done will not only need to encouragement, but much fruit and abundant life. 
God bless you. Thanks, Hank. Now, I want to talk about what we said, cancel culture, but we want to talk about it from a human perspective. First and foremost, we believe that every person is made in the image and likeness of God. That is an infallible truth. I think we would all agree with based on biblical truth that we all that we all subscribe to on this show. Uh, and so when we're talking about issues and how to deal with things in culture and, and how to deal with people in culture and talking together, we have to remember that there's people. Uh, and with that, it's not just an issue, it's, it's people. Uh, and so with that said, I want to welcome back to the show. She was with us to talk about human trafficking, and she's a professor at Baylor University, and she was so helpful with giving us so much information back then. She continues that work now, but recently she was on the receiving end of some cancel culture. Please welcome Christina Crenshaw, Dr. Christina Crenshaw, excuse me. <laughs> you are great. You can call me by my first name. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so good to be back with you guys. So good to be here. Um, I'm happy to just kind of start at the beginning of, of where the yeah. experience happened. Yeah. So uh, I guess it was, you know, kind of end of January, a friend of mine, a colleague, I guess I would say uh, Dan Darling, a leader within evangelical circles, um, put out a tweet that just said, essentially, to paraphrase, that he was concerned about rescinding uh, the Mexico City policy, uh, which was, you know, one of Trump's policies to make sure that we are not funding overseas abortion, that that I'm sure that there are other things tied to it. But in, in a nutshell, that is, you know, in summary, what that is, and that he was also concerned about the expansion of Title IX, the expansion of Title IX. So Title IX, 1972, was really enacted to ensure um, safe spaces, safe places for women to thrive in education and in sports. So anything right. that had to do with education, K through 12, and even in higher education. And this new expansion to Title IX would allow for biological men or women, but I think where the biggest concern is with biological men who identify as a biological woman, or they identify as a woman, to enter those spaces. And so that could be anything from sports, you know, track, field, basketball, to even in the educational setting, if there is, you know, a girls club, for example, uh, or, you know, chess, or, um, you know, any kind of a girls club that meets, that would allow a male mm -hmm. to decide that he wants to join those spaces. Uh, and so I think that it's really, it's a concern for everybody. So, um, or for, I would say most people that I have talked to at this point. So um, I sort of unwittingly responded, did not think that this would cause any kind of a firestorm, but just said, you know, what about the rest of us? What about those of us who don't struggle with gender dysphoria? You know, do we have a voice in this? What if we don't want biological males and biological female spaces? You know, Twitter's 140 characters. So however short, you know, that could even fit mm -hmm. in. And that was it. And then I just retweeted him, essentially. Um, you know, a good solid week goes by and, you know, either people are liking it or ignoring it, sort of the way that Twitter works in general. Uh, but then uh, the LGBTQ group at Baylor got a hold of the tweet, you know, whether somebody alerted them or who who knows, I may never know how that happened. Um, and they decided that this was going to be part of um, just sort of fodder for their fire. Unbeknownst to me then, and I've been informed since that there that this group has been in like an eight-year battle with the university to become an official sanctioned campus group 
Mm. What's problematic about that for Baylor University, and I you know, won't speak on their behalf, but it is an Orthodox traditional Baptist university. It says that in all of its rhetoric. It has been since its founding in like 1845. So I think that that's where there's been tension. The student paper wrote a very slanderous, agenda-driven article, and that the title of it essentially, again, kind of paraphrasing, was Dr. Crenshaw tweets transphobic message. Right. So just in questioning whether or not, you know, those of us, and and there, and I would say it's a majority voice on this. I mean, I, we can talk about what the House just passed and whether it is majority, but a lot of people, particularly in faith-based circles, have a concern about mm-hmm. the Equality Act, about the expansion of Title IX. So I know that I'm not alone in this, but the mm-hmm. student paper, I mean, I have had to learn to extend grace in my heart. It is not something mm. that naturally, but I have to remember these are 20 year old kids where the adults were on this. I'm not sure, but they ran this, this really slanderous article and, and the entire article was about this. I mean, there's no other, I guess, sort of like dirt, so to speak. I mean, there's nothing else they could find on right. me because I've, you know, been a pretty celebrated person on campus. I've done great work. I've won awards. I just don't think that there was any other way to paint me other than to say that I was transphobic. And I kept asking myself, why would they do that? And it was, and then I realized the article was essentially trying to make the case that if I'm not safe, if Dr. Crenshaw's not safe, well, then who else on campus is not a safe person and they just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And this is why they then need a safe space because I really do try to hold a very balanced classroom. You know, I'm unapologetic about like, hey, I have a Christian worldview and it's the only worldview I have. But because I believe all truth is God's truth, you are welcome to come to the table with hard questions and we will juxtapose those and we'll wrestle through them. So I don't think that there was any question about where I stood on faith. I think, you know, like they were more surprised where I stand on the political issue. So they then took me off the safe list, wrote this article. Um, it was a this week on campus. I mean, students versus administration, uh, a lot of the leaders on campus reaching out on my behalf, you know, different faculty. Um, you know, we have like a board of regents that that runs the university. A couple of them have reached out on my behalf. I, the former president, um, even some ambassadors under, you know, uh, our former national president. So it was crazy to see who came out of the woodworks in my defense, but that unfortunately just enraged the students more. And um, a group of them started a petition to get me fired, which didn't work. You don't fire somebody because you disagree with them, you know, theologically or politically, like that's just not the way the fabric of America was designed to be worn. So I think I knew that, but it was a very scary experience when you have 500 angry college kids coming after you. And there were a couple of days that week where I just felt anxious and nervous. I'm, I'm not typically that kind of a person. I've never had a reason to be. But I I think, and again, trying to extend grace, there were a few, very handful of adults, I would say, like people over 30, who sort of took their side um, because people usually either agree with religious expression or free speech, even if they're not on the same page politically, there's just this place of like, you have the right Mm -hmm. to question in the public square. I mean, it was a little unnerving to experience. I was nervous for my kids, the kinds of rhetoric that they would use. Um, I was really hostile, really, really agitated. Um, 
just kind of fearful for my kids. Some of the things that they would say, you know, this is a small town and it's easy to figure out where people live. It's easy to figure out where your kids go to school. So that made me nervous for a good week. But again, I do want to say just kind of for the record, you know, Baylor as an institution did not speak up on the sexual ethic issue that I think people are still the ambiguity of that. You know, there are a lot of people who are still like, okay, but you know, Baylor, you've been silent on this, but where they did speak up was for free speech. You know, they did come out with a statement that actually said like, you don't just get to fire people because you disagree with their, you know, their right to expression. I wanted to sort of define, you know, cancel culture, what cancel culture is and acknowledge that it does happen. Um, being balanced in our analysis today, that it does happen on both sides. And I know you have some research and studies that you've seen um, that that acknowledges that, but it also acknowledges that it's different on either side. There is a study that I've brought up on on other outlets, um, and it was done out of Harvard, and it looks specifically at cancel culture. It came out a couple of years ago, uh, and and it essentially this this robust study found that both sides do it, uh, but but typically when the left does it, it's it. I mean, and, and even then, like how do you define left and right? You know, like you'd have to look at the qualifiers for how they define that. But when people who tend to lean more, you know, politically left do it, they tend to target more of a person, whereas the right does also engage in cancel culture. And so this is not, you know, an excuse for them um, or a moral judgment. But when they do it, they typically go after more of like a movement or a company. So for example, you'll often hear people who are more conservative saying we're going to cancel Disney, we're going to cancel Netflix. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas people who sort of lean more progressive will, if they're going to engage in cancel culture. So again, I don't want to, it's not monolithic, it's not everybody. Um, But if they do engage in cancel culture, it's usually a person. And I think we've seen this a lot with like, I don't know if you guys have followed Chris Harrison, The Bachelor host. Have you guys followed that story? Oh, yes. We're big Bachelor fans. Are you? (laughs) I mean, I have to say, I've actually never even seen a single episode. But because this happens sort of simultaneously or to the woman who was on The Mandalorian with Disney. Mm -hmm. um, And again, like, I don't follow her. I don't follow her tweets. I don't don't know. But you do. There is sort of this pattern. So you've got like data that supports that. But then you've also got these like more qualitative case studies that show, you know, I, I watched the Chris Harrison interview and I struggled. I you know I tried, I'm like, okay, it's not real sensitive. He yeah. used woke like 10 times, you know, which I thought was just you know, like bad, you know, rhetoric. Yes. Uh but I but you know I'm struggling on like, but did he deserve to be fired? And I think that's where cancel culture becomes really dangerous because we're there's not a lot of you know, for back a, a lack of better words, there's not a lot of grace anymore for conversation because everything you say and do can be held against you in the public square, in the court of public opinion. And you're just, you're sort of guilty before there's even a conversation. I think that's where cancel culture becomes really concerning. My tweet was a question, it ended in a question mark. Like, and the answer was, no, Wiki, you can't ask the question. We start targeting a person and we say, it doesn't really matter all that you've ever done in the past that looks like common good work. In this moment, we disagree with you and we're not willing to have a nuanced conversation about it. And it and it disagrees with the predominant narrative. So you just have to be silenced. How can we ever truly know what someone's saying if we just want to shut it down? No, shut it down. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And, you know, I was thinking, and I don't know if you mind me reading this, but I, I want to bring Gina Carano's uh, tweet up. I think the point she made was excellent and 
the fact she was fired for this point proves her point. She said, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but, but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get, uh, to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? What in the world is wrong with that yeah. commentary? That is a true commentary. All she's saying is, listen, this didn't happen overnight. It wasn't just, hey, we're going to suddenly hate the Jews. It was little indoctrinations. Let's turn on your neighbor. Let's turn on. Let's silence you because we don't agree. We don't agree with you. Keep your mouth shut. She's saying we're turning on each other with hate because of our political views. Oh, you're fired. You're gone. You're censored. We shut you down. That is the most dangerous possible place we can be. And I don't care whether who you agree with, what side, Trump, not, you know, Biden, right, left, it doesn't matter. As soon as we start canceling, like when Trump was, all of his accounts were canceled, everything was canceled. And I went, I don't care who you agree with. The minute you start doing that and you silence people, you are going down a very dangerous road. Because like you said, we have to have grace for conversation. I remember there was a Muslim group that kept coming to uh, our church up in Seattle and people were kind of upset about, they were like coming and wanting to talk and have these conversations. I said, let's open the doors. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a panel. How yeah. could you say that? I said, because if we believe what we believe, then what is the fear in hearing somebody yeah. else? Okay. Right. I am solid in my foundation. Hearing a Muslim share their faith isn't going to change me. And if it does, I'm not solid in my foundation. Yes. I think that us as, as Christ followers and whoever, we have to be able to learn how to share our values, our thoughts, and to do it in a way that, that is loving. I remember just to share one story, my son was in fourth grade and he went to school with a cross that when my brother passed away, we gave away crosses um, at the funeral for, and everybody to wear. So he would wear it to school. Mm -hmm. And one sweet little Muslim girl came up to him one day and said, that cross offends me. So my son being the peacemaker, you know, we, we wear that scripture really well. Blessed are the peacemakers took it and he put it inside of his shirt because he didn't want to offend her. And he came home and he shared with me the story. And I said, you know, son, I appreciate that you want to be a peacemaker. But mm -hmm. I said, can I give you another way maybe to handle it? Mm -hmm. Maybe next time you look at her and you go, you know what? I respect your culture. I respect your belief system, but we are in America and I'm going to ask you to respect mine also. Mm -hmm. And so if it offends you, feel free to look away. I'm not trying to push anything on you, but this is my um, outward of how I believe. And so I think that we have to be real careful anymore that we're, we're not, we're not getting to the point that everybody's so afraid to even speak what we believe, what our values are, because we're afraid of being shamed. We're being afraid of losing business. I can't tell you how many people that I speak to now who own their own businesses, who are like, we're scared. We're scared to speak up because we're afraid that they'll come and make it where people shut us down. I mean, come on, guys. We've lost something here. And I'm glad we're having this conversation because we, we can't keep living this way. It, it's not right. I think, you know, like I've done, a, I have done a lot of listening, a lot of conversations yeah. since this has happened. There are, there is a percentage, a, a small but very loud percentage of Americans who are still very angry for how much I think 
Christianity has dominated the national conversation. And because most people, I mean, the latest Pew report will show that it's still about 70%, if not a little bit higher, who identify as Christian, you know, like within the different denominations of Christianity, they believe, you know, and a, you know, in God and, and a savior. So I think that we have had the dominant narrative for so long. And there have been ways that we were maybe not as sensitive to pluralistic policies. And so I think, for example, and I've thought about this even long before this conversation, it is really difficult to have a stance on something like homosexual marriage, for example, because I have a theological view on that, and then I have a political view on that. And the two don't necessarily align, because if we're talking about civil rights for everybody, regardless of how you identify sexually, then it is difficult for me to make a case against civil unions, right? But at the same time, like, don't ask me to defend that theologically, because I don't know that I can't. And so I'm listening to people who are saying, you know, like, well, Christians have been doing cancel culture since the beginning of time. And I'm trying to be really sensitive to hear them say that. And they'll give me some examples, particularly back, you know, the 1980s, the moral majority, you know, their examples. I'm trying not to name particular people on purpose to be honoring of them. Or, you know, like somebody comes out as more of a progressive Christian and then historically you've got the conservative. It's like you're canceled, you're disenfranchised, you're excommunicated. I'm thinking very specifically of some examples. And so I'm like, I'm trying to listen and I'm like, I hear you. But again, I'm going to go back to that study because this is what I see the whole, the landscape of America Historically, when people who are more conservative have done that, they have gone after silencing movements or policies or even ideology. What I am seeing happen now um, in the public square is a canceling of a person, of a shutting down of a person, as you brought into conversation, Jenny, with um, with Gina, you know, from Star Wars. So I think that that is like that. That's a whole new level of concern that it feels very like kind of like McCarthyism. It feels a little bit like I like I'm living in Orwellian times. Right. You know, and so, again, even with the McCarthy example, like we have lived through a period in American history where we have had witch hunts and we have had lists. But, you know, did we not learn anything from that? Like that doesn't end well, you know, like that is not who we want to be as an American people. And so I'm hoping that enough people who are center, you know, center right, center left, kind of the classical liberals too. I'm seeing a lot of people who I would say are, you know, kind of progressive and liberal, but they're kind of classically liberal. Like I don't necessarily agree with you theologically, but I will fight to the death your right to say it. Um, you know, that sort of like, philosophical ideology, it's been helpful. And I think that's where we all have to be like, no, when we see things that are true, big T truths, little T truths, we have to be willing to, to step into the conversation and saying like, I'm actually not going to allow you to silence what we know to be true. Um, I want to hop in real quick. I think that yes, we covered a say. lot of ground and I think we're all talking from a lot of passion, which is good. Um, but I think some of these things are more complicated than we're making it sound. You know, the Chris Harrison thing, was he was defending um, an ex, um, I don't know, I don't call him client, an ex person on the show contestants who had went to an antebellum party. Yeah, You know, like we're not talking about a lady who just made a comment. Like she went to an antebellum party and I think he was talking to a black former contestant who has complained about racism on the show as well. So that's, I think that's kind of important, you know? Like I, I think yeah. it's, you know, um, this would be the equivalent of me 
um, interviewing a Jewish person who, like, so my one of my best friend's dad was a Holocaust survivor, right? It would be interviewing him about why I went to a Nazi or excusing somebody who went to a Nazi party. Like, you can see why there'd be sensitivity there and why that would be inappropriate. Part of the problem in our culture is we just don't do nuance. So That's it's actually great for conversation. We just yeah. don't do nuance well. And I also think it's tricky when we say this is not what America was built on, because I personally don't think that was true either. You know, America was the ultimate silencer. We said all men are created equal, but we didn't really mean it. Yeah. You know, if you're a woman, you're not created equal or you don't have a voice. Oh, wow. um, if you're a Native American or Black, you don't have a voice. Thomas Jefferson, our father of liberty, basically statutory raped a Black woman and took her away from her family. And we uphold them. I mean, we have monuments to the guy. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a little bit of nuance and there's people who are upset. I get it. And I think that's important. Um, honestly, on the racial stuff, I personally don't have as much grace maybe because I feel like you can't be a student of America and you can't be on these platforms and not understand and, and not be willing to understand that like these things are, are problematic. I don't know how else to say it, right? Yeah. Um, now on the trans stuff, I think this one's the harder one. And this yeah. is where, you know, my heart goes out to Dr. Crenshaw trying to navigate it because this is relatively... I don't say new, but like the languaging and how we, you know, approach, this is new for all of us. Even people who would say they're experts on this, it's hard to find someone who's been speaking on this for 30, 40 years. I was going to say 20, but I'm trying to be gracious, right? Like, I think that's where it's even harder because we don't even know the language. So for example, I can go to any of you and be like, please don't go to antebellum parties with Confederate flags, you know, but I don't necessarily know all the rules when it comes to trans. And I do think that, you know, part of what happens is that people take collective hurt and that's what fuels these movements, you know? So for example, if I'm talking to someone who's suffered physical violence and trauma and they just see someone else who may not be doing that same trauma, but it might trigger their experience and they're speaking from that hurt, like that's where they come from. So I think that in some of these conversations, we have to remember, it's not always about what the individual said or didn't say. Sometimes it's just our collective trauma speaking. So for me, the hard part is, is saying, how do we show grace to Dr. Crenshaw and this LGBTQ? Like, honestly, the easy thing for me is to just side with you, Dr. Crenshaw, and just banish all of them. Like, that's easy. But I don't know if that's the most Christ-like thing I can do. Um, Karano, same with Chris Harrison. Like, it's just, to me, that's the hard work. Like, honestly, I would love to pick a side and call it a day. That helps me sleep way better at night. Yeah. Hank, I want to say, though, I, I don't know that it's completely what the conversation started out at in my mind, because I don't think we're arguing whether what people are saying is right or wrong. I may not agree with it. I think what we're talking about is, is it OK to cancel people out? Yes. And that's and I think we've got to bring it back to what the point is of this conversation is if it's OK for one side, it has to be OK for the other side. To me, that's when it starts getting sad is when our beautiful friend, Dr. Crenshaw, is starting not to feel safe because she asked a question. She didn't even make a statement. She asked a question. And I can say this for America because it is in our, our uh, you know, our amendments here. We have freedom of speech. Is it okay yeah. to see one people it's all right, but for another that it's not? And I think that's the conversation that needs yeah. to be had yeah. today. That's the exact point that I was making. That was yeah. it's, just, it's frightening when we start to go down right. that road because that's the road that led 
to Nazi Germany. It did. I mean, it is. That's a road that led to communism. It's shut down the side that makes us look bad. For me, one of the things that's important is I feel like I've talked to people. So I love being an Anabaptist because I don't feel at home in either party. And I love critiquing both. But it, it helps because then they both come to me. Carolyn, everything you just said, I have friends on the left who will say the same thing about the right. You know, like they feel honestly that the right has been silencing them or taking away not just their freedom of speech, but for example, their right to vote. You know, so I do think when it comes to canceling, I do think this is where our Christianity can hopefully save us, right? right. Like, what does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to reconcile? What does it mean to build up? So I do think that like, while we need nuance and we need to realize that like we have our talking points, what does our faith challenge us? to give grace. And I think where I'm with you all is that like, yeah, I don't know if a comment is enough to lose a job. It had to be really bad. But I'm also really hesitant on this free speech thing because free speech doesn't mean you can say whatever you want. You know, well, when I go to a, well, when I go to a movie theater and yell fire, I can't yeah. like I can't be mad that they they arrest me, you know, because I'm like, that's my free speech. So I do think we have to. That's what I mean. Nuance is hard. Free speech doesn't mean we get to say whatever we want. I think it's important for us to at least own that, too. Well, that's what I wanted to sort of pivot and jumping off of that, because what surprised me about Christina's particular case is a it was a question and it wasn't really even a declarative statement. And also, I having known her body of work, she's extremely balanced. So that particularly thing was a little bit more concerning to me because I hear the loud voices on either side that are like to get the big headlines and like to make the big things. And I understand why people would be more upset with those types of people. Uh, but this was uh, this was more concerning to me. But the, the other thing I want to talk about was the concept of, you know, we teach children, and this is where I was going for, we teach children to consequences to the choices you make and the, the things that you say. And I don't think, and we could talk about what our Christian viewpoint would be. I don't think as Christians, we have any right to cancel anyone. We have been forgiven of everything we have there, but there can be consequences. There still is godly justice. So let's talk about how we balance what consequences are versus canceling people. Because my hope is that as Christians, we can be the model for this that's not happening. This conversation that is not happening in the spheres beyond us, let's model this behavior. And so I'll, 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 maybe I'll start with Christina and we'll, we'll go around and see what people have to say. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I want to kind of circle back. I mean, I'm going to answer your question, Joseph, but I think you bring up a lot of great points and I mean, truly really valid points. I think where there's concern, like, you know, with what I did and I think what Chris Harrison was trying to do, even though I, one of the best things I heard someone say was like, he didn't read the room very well, like the 20 room. And I would say that that is true, but I think he was just trying to ask, like, does it matter that she was 18? Or like, I have yet to hear anybody say like, what about the cultural context? Like she didn't throw the party, like the school did, like where's the school's culpability, you know? And so I think that's what we're all sort of asking. Like we don't bring in context anymore. Like, does it matter? matter that I'm coming from a Judeo-Christian worldview? Does it matter that I've got biology on my side? You know, I'm talking specifically about asking, you know, gender dysphoria. Does it matter that, you know, we have like a, a you know, 2000 years of church history and we have, you know, all of this biology, you know, if we're not willing to look at context, like we're only like bringing in this one cultural mm -hmm. moment. So, you know, this one interview or these, you know, with Gina, it sounds like maybe there was like several controversial tweets, but 
if we're only looking at this moment and not the context, you know, then we are doing everybody a disservice because we're not monolithic people. You know, we're not monochromatic. Like this is so, as you kept saying, Hank, nuance. Um, you know, for example, I mean, I think, I hope that this is contributing to the conversation. And I want to say, you know, from the onset that I absolutely condemned this, but this is just what I had inherited. I was one of the last schools in Texas to graduate under the Confederate flag. So that is like not sort of, you know, like I didn't choose that. That was just my school flag. So I, it wasn't until I got older that I realized I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. Like okay. it's not okay and that's offensive, you know? And so I think that there are places for cultural conversations around these sensitive topics, but what we can't do, you know, particularly right now we're talking about the transgender issue is just shut people down for asking the question, like how then will we ever learn? That's so right. I think if the response had been to, to me, even if people who disagreed said, hey, but have you thought about trans youth and how we need to make sure that we're ensuring safe spaces for them? And then my response, my rebuttal to that would have been, well, yes, you know, or, or maybe not as much as I would like to help me understand. Have you thought about safe spaces for women and children? Because this will affect them you know, greatly. We're not having the hard conversations. We're just shutting them down, you know, and, and that is what's concerning because how then do we grow? It's not American and it's not Christian. And then specifically back, Joseph, to your question about, um, you know, transgender issue. Yeah, this one is just really hard because this is one of those things like, unlike, you know, same-sex marriage, for example, this one we want to create safe spaces. I want to say that, you know, be on record as saying like, I want kids who identify as transgender or who are wrestling with gender dysphoria, which is the DSM-5 term for it. You know, I looked it up before and I've looked it up since. That is still the medical term for it. Um, in fact, it felt disingenuous to use any other term. I thought I would just be making up language. And so I went with, and I had no idea this would become a viral tweet, but you know, when I wrote it, I really was trying to use the correct terminology. And so I want kids who identify as, you know, as other to feel safe. I do. And so I'm just raising the question because I can tell you from the anti-trafficking work I've done that the bathroom is one of the top places that kids are sexually abused. It depends on what data you look at, you know, but, but most data that I've looked at, it is less than 1% of people who identify as transgender. In Texas, in fact, it's like 0.4. And then as you can imagine, other places it would be higher. Um, but I'm not as worried. I mean, statistically speaking, they're, they're, they're a small percentage of the people that I'm worried about. I'm worried mm -hmm. about the gender fluidity that this allows for people who are perpetrators. How do we come together and have this conversation? Because I think there are enough of us who are still centered that's like, nope, sorry, CNN, that's not transphobic to be concerned about kids. And I think that there's enough of us who are still saying, okay, uh, no far right, we're not just going to tell kids that they don't get to play sports, that they don't get to, you know, feel safe, like you'd have to be a real monster to really adhere and espouse that kind of rhetoric. So I, I don't know, I think it's going to take more of us in the center to yeah. actually speak up and use our voice. And I want to believe, I could be wrong, but I want to believe that there are more of us living in the center um, than on the fringes. And so, you know, politically, and I think theologically, I, one of the things I have said to faith-based circles, I'm like, guys, we have got to do better about apologetics and hermeneutics in our church circles. Like, right. I don't think like we, there's 70% of America identifies as Christian, but I don't know that they are able to articulate that. And somebody had said earlier on the podcast here, 
that um, if your theology changes when you encounter a competing narrative, then that makes you wonder if it was ever really a strong theology to begin with. Because I think that if we're really operating under like a Mago day, like you were made in the image of God. So it does not matter what your faith system is, what your sexual identity is, like whatever identity you, you have, like bottom line, the Lord made you. I want to be loved as best as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ can um, like the love of Jesus. That That's what we all want. But I, I do think that we, we have to come to this place theologically. We're like, how do we love our neighbors well right. without compromising how much we love the Lord? Because that's right. the first command. You know, the greatest command is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor well, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I don't want to have to compromise loving God in order to love a neighbor. I want to love my neighbor. You know, I want to love all of them well. How do I do that without acquiescing what I know God says to be true? And I just don't know, like Big C Church, that we have done a great job of that. I don't think we've done a good job loving uh, as the church. I think we've done, you know, and I come from a very rule-driven, you know, denomination traditionally in the Catholic faith. Um, I never felt unloved. However, there was people that definitely felt condemned. I mean, and I def- there was a definite rule culture. That's changing now. We're focusing on relationship. Some Christian denominations have been doing that longer, and that's been really good. But historically, I don't think the church has done a good enough job loving Mm-hmm. while teaching the truth. And I think that has led us to a place where, you know, I, I heard on the other podcast was potentially maybe we're not the majority because I don't think we've done a good job communicating our love. I mean, that would be my mm-hmm. argument because as a manager, a practical manager, I'd say, hey, if I got 99 out of 100 and I've accommodated 99 out of 100, I've done a good job. You know, like I've done a great job as a practical manager on earth. That's awesome. But I always go back to like Jesus is a, is a, is, was a person and a God of the marginalized. He always constantly brought in the marginalized and he went out of his way to get the one sheep. Look, if I lost a sheep, I'd be like, hey, I got 99. I'm good. You know, but he went after the one sheep. So, yeah. so it's it's the same point you're making, but but more just some theo- theology that I was thinking about behind it was, you know, we we still have the duty to deal with how do we love the marginalized because we can't just say, hey, we're doing... Good for most, you know, because I don't think that's theological. The transgender thing is a very deep thing for me. One, because I know we have close uh, family friends that their children were born as as a boy and they found out like six weeks later, oh, there's some, you know, there's some biological issues. It's actually a girl, you know, and I don't want to, I don't need to get into that. But, you know, nowadays we can actually identify Um, We can do tests like with this one baby I'm talking about. They were able to run tests. And even though biologically this child looked, it was a very young preemie, looked to be a little girl when the the tests had come back, it was a a boy. Mm -hmm. And um, we can do that nowadays. We can actually say, hey, there's something, you know, there was, and I know some people might be rolling their eyes about that right now, but that's just, it was a true story. These guys were pastors. Years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, we didn't offer this kind of stuff. You had a baby, baby was sent home. You know, so I think there are some genuine transgender cases. Uh, Example, I was preaching at a women's conference in Florida and uh, I had was flying out the next day and uh, I went on my app to look to change my 
to look at my seats. Uh, you know, 24 hours out, you can get sometimes, you know, change your seat, get a better seat. I noticed that the seat next to me was taken on the map and the row next to me was open. And I went to go and choose the seat on the row that was open. And I heard in my spirit, don't do that. I walk on the plane. It's the first, uh, it's one of the first rows. And I immediately see this woman, man, man woman sitting there, very large uh, woman, clearly a man dressed as a woman, clearly. But, but you know, sometimes, you know, it's more feminine, not very feminine, long hair, um, very big muscles, very muscular, uh, looks like a man, but dressed as a woman. And I sat there and went, okay, God, you've put me here for a reason. And I just pray you help to guide my tongue and whatever our conversation should be. So it goes on, you know, uh, we start talking and I, we talked for three and a half hours straight on that flight. She opened up to me and um, that she was born with, um, exactly half and half equal chromosomes. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say something. I'm going to call, I'm going to call myself out here that I said to her and I feel like it was inspired by the Holy spirit. And I'm probably going to get possibly canceled by somebody for saying this. But when she said I have equal male and equal female, and I said, you know, it's funny. You're, Oh gosh, should I even out myself? I might <laughs> tell you later to take this out. But I said to her, I said, your chromosomes probably more re represent gods than mine do because he he's also called the many breasted one. He has, he's neither male nor female. He's both of us were came from his image. Now, I don't know why I said that. And I know spiritually or theologically, somebody might want to argue, but in that moment, that's what I feel the Holy Spirit told me to tell her. She began to weep in that moment. Yeah. Nobody could identify that she could have any representation of God because she felt so broken. She began to tell me her story that she was raised in a very religious background. She was raised Catholic, but it was a very, very strict um, denomination and that she would was I think a youth pastor as a man at one point because was asked to and loved the Lord and, and wanted to, but then at night would dress up as a woman and go out and, and then enter the military as a man. And this story went on and on. I could give you more and more details, but I saw the brokenness in this person yeah. finally stepped down and said, you know, I can't work anymore for the church because this is really who I am and was totally shunned, wanted nothing to do with God. This woman's heart opened up to my conversation, opened up to the things of the Lord, wanted to know things. We then got both got delayed on our next flight. Uh, and so we sat and had lunch together mm. and we became friends on Facebook. She followed my videos. This woman was hearing the things of the Lord because I was just willing to love her when everyone else on the plane was giving her ugly and dirty looks. And listen, I don't pretend to know what the answer is, how yes. we balance our politi po politics, because I'm kind of with you um, in the sense that, okay, civil union, yeah, we are denying people's civil rights by you know denying civil unions. I, 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 I kind of with you on that. Um, but I also know what the word of God says. And this is a very difficult thing. And so I really truly believe the answer is like you said, um, that we have to have conversation. We have to be willing to have conversation. We have to not treat people like the gross leper, the dirty leper, the, you know, you're, you're, you're just gross. And we can't just put everybody in a box of sin. We just so quickly want to label, well, that's just sin and that's dirty without hearing people's stories. The word of God also says that gluttons, that God hates gluttony. And we have no problem promoting the pastor on a pulpit that's 582 pounds and thinking they're glorious and wonderful and ignoring the fact that the word of God says that he hates gluttony, that it is a sin, that he hates a lying tongue. And so we, we kind of categorize, this is the worst sin. This is the worst sin. It's a sexual sin. We put sexual sins in this totally different category. Most people that are gay don't go, you know what? I just feel like being gay. I just want to have that lifestyle. I mean, 
maybe there are some that do, but from what I've experienced, most people, they said, I didn't want this. But I think we have well, to, be able to listen to the stories of people's heart. And, and I think you brought up a great point. I'm glad that you brought it up because I, I did look up today that over 41% of trans men and women are estimated to have attempted suicide. Oh gosh, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I do think that that is really important. And my daughter, who she's in school, actually, she wants to be a, a psychologist and, and therapist. And she was telling me the same thing that you said, that it's actually dysphoria. And, and I think that it's important that we keep that in the forefront, that these people are dealing with a lot of stuff. I, I do want to come back just to something that you said, because I think there is some people who might be watching that I don't want them to take it wrong, um, what we're talking about, because you said that you really feel that only people who are in the middle can have this conversation. Hmm. And I, I feel like I understand what you're saying. I just want to make sure everybody understands that comment because I feel like I probably am a little bit more on the right side. I'm a very conservative mm -hmm. woman um, mm -hmm. who I, I just believe the word of God. I do believe that God is a God of love. What do I do with that? I, I believe that God is a God of love, but I think that everybody has a place at the table. I, I go back to how Jesus handled it when the woman was right. caught. Mm -hmm. He looked at me and says, where art thou condemners? Mm -hmm. Here he showed her grace. He said, I'm going to show you grace because neither do I condemn thee. But he did come back with the law. And he says, but go and sin no more. God didn't give us those laws because he wants to condemn us. He gave us these laws to keep us from going over the edge. Mm -hmm. I always tell my kids, these are guardrails. They're not God mm -hmm. banging you over the head with something, honey. It's not the no, you can't. This is the guardrail saying, baby, let me keep you safe. And so I think it's all how we give it to people. And, and I do agree. I think that we need to love. We need to set at tables with people. We need to wrap our arms around people. Stop looking at them as lepers because God knows, man, if you all saw the sin in my own life, I don't know if you'd want to be friends with me. But by his grace, right. we all can sit here together. I think one thing that has really helped me in this is really being convicted by um, Jesus um, saying they will know basically that we belong to him by how we love. Um, I think one of the struggles is that we as a society, as a culture, have defined love as um, tolerance or complete acceptance. And I don't know if that's necessarily what love is. So I right. think that's one of the struggles. Yeah. Yet we are still called to love. Um, I think another thing that we have to own as the Western church is that we have chosen and how we've read the Bible is you believe before you belong. You know, and I mean by that is, yeah, we'll love anyone, but we're not going to let you teach Sunday school until we see some fruit. You know, we're not going to put you up front to teach unless we know, you know, you're one of us and you're doctrinally sound and all that. I'm not saying that's bad. I even think that like for the majority of people that works, right? But I also think there's tons of biblical evidence and even in our own lives, which is not as obviously biblical authority, but even our own lives of where we can see people who belonged before they believed. And I think the Eastern church, that's kind of their posture and how they take it. You know, they say, you know what? We're just going to love you and let the Holy Spirit work. Like, it's not my job to save you. We'll just love you. We'll invite you to the table. And every day by you seeing how we love you, you'll want to be a part of us, right? Um, and then hope our witness and our love to you will be an entry point for the Holy Spirit, right. will be a chance to break down some of those barriers, and will be a chance for you to actually feel love because I don't know too many people that I've argued into the kingdom of God. So I do think there's something we can learn there. 
in this situation. Like maybe for the 70% who identify as Christian, we need to make sure they believe before they belong. But maybe for that other 30% or 10% or 1%, whatever number we use, maybe it's just changing our posture to say, yes, yeah, some of you are on the boat and Jesus is walking on water and you're cool. You know, like, yeah, it's me. Yeah, that's cool. But maybe one of the 12 will say, are you sure that's you, Jesus? I want you to, I want to come out there and walk with you. So maybe, maybe, just maybe on some of these issues, instead of just standing on our orthodoxy and being right, maybe we do like Jenny and sit down and have a conversation. For me, in my experience, that's the bigger one I've struggled with yeah. and seen Christians struggle with is <laughs> we've equated love with something that may not be biblical or even outside of the Bible may not even be love. Yeah. You know, whether you have children, partners, cousins, friends, you know, most of our relationships isn't you do whatever you want. If you think of love as if, well, I could say anything, I have free speech to talk to my wife any way I want, but I may not get the result I want if I yeah, say it in a way that I want to decide way. You know what I mean? And so it kind of goes in the same way. I mean, I don't think in, in Christina's particular case when she just posed a question, but for instance, Chris Harrison's, you know, I don't necessarily think he was making any necessarily bad points, but he made them so roughly and in a way that was just not productive, you know? And so I agree with what Christina said. It's a, it just, he just could have, said it with the sensitivity the rhetoric could have been higher like don't go in like i'm i'm here to make a point you know like listen and then have the dialogue like we're doing now you know well, like reading reading the room is so important right so i know i have a sister on here who is a pastor and fully called by god but i still speak and interact in spaces of people who don't believe women are in ministry now oh, we disagree, God. we disagree vehemently with each other, right? But when I go into that space, you know, I build up my case. You know, I don't start off and be like, I think y'all wrong. I don't even understand what's wrong with all of you. Like, and you read your Bibles, you know? Yeah. I think that's one of the pluses of being vulnerable and actually trying to build um, a table where you can feel like, hey, everyone has a space here. Because when you mess up, I think it's a grace for people to be like, it's okay, Hank, you know, right. like, I love you, I forgive you. I just feel like we need to be just as much about that as about telling people what they're doing is wrong. That's mm -hmm. right. I mean, I think as we're all talking, we realize that, you know, political and theological um, beliefs don't always align. I mean, they're tricky. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the word we keep using is like we need nuanced conversations. But I think that there is a danger in always trying to align it because as Hank pointed out, you know, we can look back over the history of America and see where we have misinterpreted scripture. Or we have been at fault. I mean, we are not without our you know, our national sins. Um, and so I think coming back to the father heart of God, you know, coming back to what we think scripture is saying, you know, coming back, I think to maybe even to a fault, I can appeal to authority a little too strongly, you know, kind of like, well, what did Augustine say on this? What did C.S. Lewis say on this? Like, we don't have to, you know, make every sort of cultural nuance, um, a new idea that, that sometimes people have wrestled through this without, you know, throughout humanity already. I think that it's a little different with transgendered issues. If this is one of, I, I mean, correct me if you guys know, and I'm wrong, but I don't know of any other time in history where we have tried to pass laws and policies. And so I think that that's what makes this so tricky right. and problematic. 
I think what was so shocking about the way that my there was a reaction to my tweet is I said we we sort of assumed that this was a safe sacred space, not necessarily Twitter, but the person I was responding to is a Baptist leader. I'm at a Baptist university, and so I think that that's where this then becomes not a public square conversation, but it's like, hey, church. What, like, what do we believe on these sorts of issues? I mean, they're particularly the transgendered issue and, you know, how we're going to navigate that. But I think just other issues as well, if we're talking about abortion, if we're talking about homosexual marriage, like we really have to do a better job of talking about these things in-house so that, as we've shared on here, that the world's not dictating that narrative for us. There's a difference between accountability within the church and I think cancel culture, which is what I we're seeing kind of outside of the church. There's a difference with the conversations that we have in-house in our family and then the kind of conversations that we're having with people who are clearly not believers. It gets just harder and trickier when it, it people are all, the 70% of us are claiming to be Christians. And so again, I think it comes back to like church conversations. Like we've got to have these conversations with in the church. Now let's talk about the fullness of prayer. I like formulas. I like formats. And so I do a lot of study, like Bible study plans. I need the discipline of getting in the word or my prayers can look relaxadaisical, specifically in this, because there was no prayer for cancel culture. It has just been a lot of like, like Jesus, Lord, like just coming before the Lord. I have been ugly crying, weeping, particularly right after it happened, just broken, broken, I mean, broken, and just like, Lord, just love me, you know, so it's just been a, a real prayer of lament, um, a real prayer of grief, a real prayer of just like, sift my heart, Lord, um, attune it to what is you, what is yours, um, you know, it, kind of that St. Augustine prayer, like, my heart is restless until it finds rest in you, you know, different seasons for different prayers. Normally, I need a plan. In this season of brokenness, I have just laid my heart before the Lord, just prayer, worship, crying. I certainly know we didn't have enough time today to talk, you know, more thoroughly about trans issues or the Equality Act. And I didn't think we were going to have enough time to really dissect that. That's a whole show in and of itself. I think we've demonstrated today that if you go into a conversation saying, here's my position, but maybe this person's experience won't change my beliefs but will enlarge my understanding based on their experience. I mean, that's how I sort of approach it. Maybe I didn't understand everything when I formed this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you're changing biblical truth, but it changes your heart. It changes mm -hmm. your heart about how you deal with these issues. And that's, I want to say, is I think the strongest issue. Let your guard down and have a conversation and be, yeah. able, be able and be willing to be enlarged, have your heart enlarged and understand where the other person's perspective is going to take you into another yeah. depth, another width of understanding. And that will just inform how you can navigate the complexities of the world because, because we're just going to all have to live together. And, and that's how we do it by listening, not and, and, and believing in what we believe, but respecting each other and respecting the, each other's uh, godliness within us because we're made in his image. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just inherent from the day we're born. And with all of that said, we hope that uh, you got full today. We hope that you were full of information, full of inspiration, just full of some, maybe some techniques about how to engage in these conversations in the upcoming weeks. And we'll see you next time on The Full Life.